If you have your Bibles, join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Consider together verses 21 and following. We are talking broadly in recent weeks about issues related to marriage and family. We are talking specifically in this morning's time about the business of forgiveness. There are two directions in the event of an offense. There is the way of forgiveness and grace and mercy, and there is the way of unforgiveness and bitterness and great despair moving forward. If you're going to enjoy marriage for any length of time, if you're going to enjoy any peace at all within your family, forgiveness is going to have to be a considerable part of that equation. You put two sinners together as husband and wife, and you are assured a scenario in which forgiveness is required. Same is true with regards to family and extended family, with all of the oddities and uniquenesses that can come with the composition of a family. Forgiveness must be a part of the equation if there's to be any longevity whatsoever. I have uh, witnessed great examples of, of forgiveness that have been moving and impactful for me and in the church and community in general. I pastored a church that had been embroiled in scandal and disunity in the years leading up to my coming there to be the pastor. Chief among the scandals was a, a fairly public incident of adultery involving noteworthy members of the body. And I can remember a few years into pastoring that church, pre preaching a funeral service and watching the wife of uh, sit at the side and console the other woman at the loss of a, a relative and, and dear friend and being so impressed by that expression of forgiveness and, and mercy and an act that the world would likely regard as foolish, but one that strikes at the heart of what God has done for us in the grace of his son, Jesus. Even within our body in the last few weeks, it was in a conversation with a member of our church who lost children in a tragic accident. In fact, it was so tragic that it was national news. N national news that was eventually overcome by the astonishing nature of the forgiveness that was granted the driver that was the cause of the accident itself. You, you likely know of examples of forgiveness that are astounding, that are moving, that are compelling, and that have had gospel impact in the lives of those who have witnessed such acts of forgiveness. But you have also, in all likelihood, witnessed examples of unforgiveness, of bitterness, and how it festers in the soul of man, the problems it creates uh, years and years and years down the line. I, I was raised, as you know, if you've been around for a long time, in my teenage years, I was with my grandparents, a godly grandmother who was deeply in love with Jesus, and a grandfather who was far from God. I can't tell you the number of times I, I can remember him sitting down and rehearsing this episode from his childhood. His, both of his parents had passed away, and there was a gathering at the home to decide what to do with the kids. He was barely 15 years old, laying on the bed in his bedroom and listening to the conversation among his aunts and uncles on the front porch. And there was a willingness to take the brother, and there was a willingness to take sister, but no one wanted to take the responsibility of dealing with my grandfather and all of the issues that he would bring along. And he, he could relive that. He could, he could describe everything that happened, every word that was spoken so vividly. It was the source of, of great bitterness and it festers and it creates all of these other issues in its aftermath. If you've ever known a person who is truly bitter, truly unforgiving, 
it creates this delusion. I would watch him in conversation. It could be a pleasant conversation, a positive conversation, just a back and forth with a friend, walk away, and within 12 to 24 hours, he would have rehearsed that episode until he had come up with what he believed to be reasonable justification for being offended at what had happened. Unforgiveness creates this hypersensitivity, this expectation that something will inevitably happen to hurt me. I, you know, I think it contributes. I can't, I can't tell you the number of times in recent days I've been involved in counseling with someone and they would say, he or she is clearly textbook narcissistic. Well, I think our culture is clearly textbook narcissistic. But there's something to be said for the fact that this idea of unforgiveness, this me first mentality creates bitterness and hypersensitivity to offense. That is the way of the world. What I'm saying to you this morning is that central to healthy marriages and central to healthy family and central to the gospel is a heart posture of forgiveness toward those who might sin against us. And that is precisely the message of Matthew 18, 21 and following. So if you found your way there, join me as we stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Verse 21, the Bible says, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. And the master of that slave had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. What the other slaves saw, or when the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. And after he'd summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The demand for forgiveness within the framework of marriage and family is so apparent and so often experienced, it's become stereotypical and even a source of some degree of, of comedy. I will tell people from time to time that Brandy and I don't fight. The reason we don't fight is because if she gets mad at me, she doesn't speak to me, right? I think that's fairly typical of, of ladies. You get the silent treatment. It's sort of a feminine phenomenon when there are issues within within a particular marriage. I can remember in the early years just deciding, all right, I'm waiting this out. We'll see how long she can do this. Let me just tell you, she can do it longer than you can. 
there, there is this phenomenon that is, uh, I think, shared among ladies. I call it the book of blame. You may not have to deal with an issue in the moment, but when something else happens down the road, the book of blame might come out. And so it's important that you deal with issues along the way. Guys are no different. We have our own quirks and oddities and weird ways of approaching stuff and, and dealing with issues. But if you've been married for 15 minutes, you know that forgiveness must be an important part, a major part of the formula, if there's going to be any health and happiness whatsoever. If you are breathing the breath of life with any family whatsoever, you have experienced the tremendous need for grace and forgiveness toward those around you. And the fact that along the way, you're going to require personally some grace and forgiveness, given your propensity toward doing that which is boneheaded. The idea of forgiveness, the business of, of forgiveness comes up in the passage raised here by Peter. Jesus gives the parable of the unforgiving servant. But he's compelled to offer this parable because of a question by Peter, which comes up as a result of Jesus' conversation in the chapter before. Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, how heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance, how God delights to forgive sinful people of their sin when we come by faith in Jesus Christ. And then it's followed by a paragraph, usually identified as the paragraph of the New Testament on church discipline. I hate that it's referred to as church discipline, but traditionally that's the way it's usually referred to. The force, the focus, the intended outcome of discipline as it's described is the reconciliation of a brother. His or her restoration to Jesus, his or her restoration to the body of Christ. So forgiveness is sort of a theme in Matthew chapter 18. And naturally here, Peter asks, how often are we to forgive? Are we to forgive up to seven times? Now it may seem kind of an arbitrary number pulled from nowhere, but Peter seems to really think, in my estimation, Peter thinks that he's asked something good. So there's a tradition in ancient Israel that says we forgive three times. Fourth time, you're out. You're done. Sort of one up on the, on the three strikes rule, right? After the third time, if you, if you sin against me, if you offend me in some way, and you come to me for forgiveness, I'm not going to grant that. They base it on the book of Amos, and they massage a passage in the book of Job. But that's the tradition at the time of Peter's asking Jesus this question. Now, that's not biblical in any way, shape, form, or fashion, but that's never stopped people in history at distorting and manipulating the teaching of the Bible. So when Peter says, Lord, should we forgive up to seven times? He probably asked the question with an expectation of Jesus applauding his graciousness. Like he's doubled the three-time forgiveness requirement and even upped it by one, right? Should we forgive up to seven times? Jesus speaks to him in verse 22, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven, which is not to say that the 491st time a person sins against you, that you're not obligated to grant them forgiveness in the gospel. Jesus is exploding this notion that forgiveness can be this cold, calculating, objective thing. It is not that we are keeping a ledger and we're, we're evaluating the number of times a person requires our forgiveness in the hopes that they get to four or eight or 491. 
The idea here is that we are, as followers of Jesus, to have a heart of forgiveness toward those who sin against us. We are slow to take offense, and we are quick to forgive because we have been forgiven freely through the message of the gospel. And so Jesus, on the basis of this question, tells the parable that begins in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now, I doubt that there are many among us who understand the full magnitude of what Jesus has just described. We don't deal in talents. We don't deal in denarii or denarius, which comes up later in the passage. These are foreign forms of currency that may not resonate much with us. So let's unpack 10,000 talents. One talent was equal to, at minimum, 6,000 denarii. One denarii was equal to one day's wage. So it would take you working 6,000 days, at minimum 6,000 days, in order to earn just one talent. And this man owes the king 10,000 talents. It was said by a historian that the annual revenue of the entire region of Galilee was roughly 300 talents. And this man owes 10,000. Now we could really get into the weeds here and speculate about how in the world someone could come to amass such an incredible debt to the king. The strong implication is that something nefarious is at foot. But even if you were siphoning off by embezzlement the lion's share of all of Israel's revenue, you would still be hard-pressed to accumulate a debt of 10,000 talents to the king. The short of the long is this. This man, this servant, has a debt he simply cannot pay. In fact, I'm not convinced that when Jesus says 10,000 talents, he even means 10,000 talents. In the Greek language, the highest number that has a word is 10,000. The English equi equivalent is myriad. If I come home today and, and I meet my four-year-old at the door and I say, I say, Bo, how, how many kids were in the nursery? He might say something like, there was a bazillion daddy. And we don't have a bazillion number. But I think that the 10,000 is functioning like the bazillion in our passage. In other words, this brother owes a bazillion dollars and he has no source for repayment. There is no way he can ever pay back what he's indebted to the king. And so the decision is made here to sell the man into slavery, to sell his wife, his children, and all he possesses in order to recoup what may be recovered of the debt itself. Verse 26. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I'll pay you everything. And by the way, he would not pay everything. And the master, in verse 27, of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. At this point, the disciples must have been saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. 
This is us. God has forgiven us a debt we could not pay. We owed immeasurably more by virtue of our sin debt than even this servant, 10,000 talents indebted to the king. And God has afforded the sacrifice of his son Jesus, that he would die on the cross, taking our sin debt upon himself, accrediting to our account his perfect righteousness. Yes, yes, amen and amen. At this point in the parable, we, as the body of Christ, might say, amen, amen. We have owed immeasurably more than this servant, 10,000 talents indebted to the king, and God has afforded us forgiveness through the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. You and I have a debt we cannot pay, but by the blood of Jesus, the price of our redemption has been paid. Amen and amen, right? But no one touches the hem of Christ's garment without being impacted by that effusion of power. No one comes to believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ without that having bearing on their life from that moment forward. We are all enthusiastic and rightly so about the gift of salvation that is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. But often spirits can be dampened when we begin to reckon with the realities of what the gospel calls us to in the aftermath of our salvation. In other words, in other words no one makes this transaction of salvation with God without the rest of your earthly life being influenced, impacted, changed, transformed forever by that encounter with Jesus Christ. I suspect that the amens hushed among the disciples, and they may be hushing in your hearts in the next few moments. Look at verse 28. That slave went out. He found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. Now, we don't do talents, and we don't do denarii either, so let's talk about this for just a moment. What, what, what kind of debt is this? Remember, 6,000 denarii make one talent. The first servant owed 10,000 talents. This servant owes just 100 denarii. So to put this in perspective, he owes roughly 0.0000017 what the first servant owed. In other words... What he owes this forgiven servant is small in comparison to the forgiveness he received from the king. Now, you might expect that because he had been given so, forgiven so much, he would forgive freely, but he doesn't. And we might say of the body of Christ, we might say of an individual Christian, because he has been forgiven so much, he ought to forgive freely, only to find that often the case there's a reluctance to or an unwillingness to extend the same kind of grace and forgiveness. Now, we tend to measure offenses, right? Some of you have been offended at the 100 denarii level. And some of you have been offended at the 10,000 talent level. 
The tendency might be to assess the magnitude of your offendedness and to make a determination about forgiveness on the basis of the degree to which you've been offended. But the message of the gospel does not afford us room for that. I get that there are all sorts of complexities when it comes to forgiveness. I have never in 18 years of preaching preached a sermon on forgiveness with, without a, a, a week's long wave of questions about what forgiveness looks like, how should we forgive, when should we forgive, what about this set of circumstances. I know that there's all sorts of complexities and messiness when it comes to forgiveness. And those must be dealt with in the wisdom and discernment of God's Holy Spirit. But the default position of the Christian heart ought to be to forgive freely, even as God has forgiven us. I'm not minimizing or setting aside those kinds of concerns, right? Like if your accountant embezzles your retirement fund, don't go back to that accountant. That forgiveness does not mean throwing good money after bad in your situation. But it does mean forgiving graciously, mercifully, recognizing that even a sin, an offense of that magnitude is small in comparison, isolated to a single episode, the sin that you might amass over the course of your life, sin that has come under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all with me this morning? We have been forgiven freely, and therefore we are to forgive freely those who sin against us. The conversation between the services have been fascinating. What, I, what I've learned is what I suspected, that these are issues that are dealt with, that are experienced on an ongoing basis, within your circle of friends, within your families. I can't tell you the number of times in recent days I've counseled with someone and they would say of this person or that person that they're wrestling back and forth with that they are a narcissist. I think, I think the default position of our, of our culture today is that of narcissism. And they say the same things again and again and again. He or she is textbook narcissist. In some ways, that is born out of an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to esteem others more highly than ourselves. There's a selflessness to which God is calling us away from the pride we addressed in last week's message, that we would esteem others more highly than ourselves, that we would grant forgiveness fully and free because God has fully and freely forgiven us of our sin. And so here this servant has experienced great forgiveness, but his memory is quite short. He chokes and he demands payment from this servant who owes him but 100 denarii. In verse 29, at this, the Bible says, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. He just would not forgive. Forgiveness can be, again, as I said, complex and complicated. Some of you have been offended in ways that you revisit from time to time, sort of go back to them as a dad. With my oldest, I, I think he provoked more thought about old stuff, childhood stuff, every milestone that he would reach. Like when he turned 13, I remember thinking, of where I was and what I was doing and what I underwent, what I was permitted to do, the circumstances in which I lived at 13 years old. You know, when you're 13, you think you're a man 
And then when you have a 13-year-old child, you realize what a foolish thought that was at 13 years old and how childish you are in reality. And it, and it sort of gives rise to this need to revisit all of those things again and to forgive again, all over again. For some of you, forgiveness is not this one-time thing. I'm just going to forgive it. And I'm moving on and everything's different from this point forward. That's a, that's a foolish thought. It's not going to work that way. You're going to revisit the memories of what happened, this traumatic episode in your life. You're going to have to go back to that again and again and again, and you're going to have to grant forgiveness when you do. The, the other alternative is to, to take this philosophy of everything in my life is someone else's fault. Now, I just got to tell you, on the practical level, every, every long-term addict, every long-term failure, Every person I've known to struggle to maintain any level of success in any area of their life over time, they all have one thing in common. Everything that is wrong with their life is always somebody else's fault. And in a lot of cases, there have been some bad things that happened. There have been some things outside of their control that have happened to them to make their course of life a little more difficult perhaps than others around them. But you really got two choices. You're gonna, either going to writhe in the misery of what may have happened to you beyond your control or take personal responsibility for what you can do about the things you can control. It's a miserable lot to lay around as a victim for the rest of your experience. You can be victimized without spending the rest of your day as a victim. You don't have to be that way. Grand forgiveness in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Search to find the way forward and live in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are really just these two alternative ways to go. The message of the world with regards to forgiveness is that we do that because it's practically beneficial for us. How many times have you heard the slogan, bitterness is like swallowing poison with the expectation that that's going to do harm to the one who's offended us or the one we have bitterness against. And that's a true principle, right? It, it, it will not do you good to be bitter or unforgiving toward another. But at the heart of a proverb like that is the suggestion that we are forgiving exclusively motivated by self-interest. When in reality, we ought to be driven by the free grace we have received in the gospel. There are these exceptional cases where granting forgiveness is not going to serve your personal benefit. You will happen upon an instance in which it will not be personally beneficial to you to grant a person forgiveness. You ever been angry and just thought, I should forgive, but I don't want to right now? You can explode that. That's sort of a microcosm of broader realities in your life where it may not benefit you to grant forgiveness. That, that is not the way our world or culture works. But that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ has called us to, to grant forgiveness, not driven by self-interest, but driven by the basic realities that we have been forgiven freely. Therefore, we should forgive freely, that forgiveness in and of itself is morally right and is modeled by the Lord Jesus through the sacrifice of his own blood shed for us at Calvary's tree. This is good and this is right. Again, there are a lot of complexities that come with forgiveness, but this is who we are in Jesus. 
Pastor Jason and I were talking between the second and third, between these, this service and the last, about the fact that Jesus just doesn't offer the qualifications you often hear in our world with regards to forgiveness. You, you, may, be, you may be sitting there as a bitter person begrudging that reality. But if in humility you can ever manage to see yourself as you are, a sinner in need of God's grace, you'll rejoice in the reality that God does not qualify or make exceptions when it comes to the granting of forgiveness. This forgiven servant had a short memory. He'd forgotten about how the king forgave him and was unwilling to show the same kind of mercy toward his fellow slave in spite of the fact that he owed him a small percentage of what he'd been forgiven. Go down to verse 32. After he'd summoned him, that is the king had summoned the forgiven servant, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? His master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you doesn't forgive his brother from his heart. Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your father will not forgive your wrongdoing. It's a more forceful way of expressing what Jesus has said in this parable. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. From his heart. We have all these ways in the culture of being coached to create caveats in our forgiveness. I'll forgive, but I, I won't forget. But God said, when I forgive your sin, it's as far from my mind as the east is from the West. Again, I know there are complexities, but there are no such qualifications in the passage cited nor in the passage at hand. Sometimes I hear people say, well, they didn't seek my forgiveness. They didn't ask me to forgive them. But Jesus models for us from the cross this prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I just want to press at this idea that the forgiveness of God is unlike the forgiveness you may be trained in by the culture around us. Gospel forgiveness is a fundamentally different kind of forgiveness than what is often experienced in the world around us. Here Jesus says, if you forgive others, I'll forgive you. If you don't, I won't. Now, what do we do with that? I think for a lot of Christians... There's a massaging of those kinds of verses in order to smooth off the sharp edges. What we might say is, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. No matter what I say or do, even if I'm harboring unforgiveness in my heart toward another, nothing can unsettle, beset, take away, or break the gift of salvation that God has granted me in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's right. But that is not the exclusive issue at hand when Jesus says here what he says. There are, it's almost as though there are two levels at which Jesus is working here. There is the level of salvation. The reality is you didn't, get, you didn't do anything to get your salvation. You can't do anything for your salvation to go away. 
But that doesn't deny the reality that we are actively being sanctified by the work of God's Holy Spirit. That the desire of God is to create in us, to mold in us, to make of us a heart like that of his son, Jesus Christ. And don't forget whom he loves, he chastens. Even as a believer, if you're harboring unforgiveness or bitterness in your heart, you are living under the active hand of God's discipline, God's judgment against you, correcting, rebuking, reproofing, refining in you the work of God's Holy Spirit, making and molding you into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week's passage? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. If in your pride you are holding back forgiveness, if in your pride you are harboring bitterness toward another, God is actively fighting against you. And until you're able to grant grace and mercy and forgiveness, even as you have received forgiveness, God will actively fight against you. He disciplines, he chastises those he loves. The idea here is that we are to seek to match the grace God has shown us with regards to those around us. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Sincerely forgive those who sin against you. I bet you, I, I bet you there are some husbands and wives here this morning who, who aren't speaking to one another. I bet you there's some brothers. Yeah, y'all all look spiritual coming in this morning. But I know. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. I, I like good comedy. Scarcely can you find comedy that is, isn't vulgar. But there's, a, there's this comedian now who does this whole bit on the movie The Sixth Sense. Do y'all remember The Sixth Sense? Bruce Willis dies at the beginning of the movie, but you don't realize it. He's like with the family all the way through and he talks and, and, but there's never any interaction between him and his wife. And then at the end you find out he was dead. The whole, he was always dead. And the whole point of the bit, the punchline is no one really thought anything about the fact that his wife didn't speak to him for like a year. You missed the whole thing and he was dead all along. There's never any interaction. Some, some of you are living that kind of coexistence that doesn't know peace, that doesn't know harmony, that doesn't know the fullness of joy that you stand to have as a husband and wife. Some of you have been at odds with, with friends and family members for years and years and years and years. And you say things like, well, they haven't sought forgiveness. They didn't ask me to forgive them. They don't, they don't even know or understand why what they did was was so terrible. N none of those are, are realistic, meaningful, or biblical qualifications on the demand of God on our life to forgive freely those who offend us in light of the fact that we have been freely forgiven. Some, some of you have experienced unspeakable offenses. And some of you have committed unspeakable offenses. You know, the nature of my coming to faith in Jesus was such that I was often called upon. There, there, was a, there was a period of several years when I would not share my testimony of coming to Jesus because it began to feel like people wanted to hear more 
about the chaos and the sinfulness of the years before coming to faith in Jesus than they really wanted to hear about this incredible moment where God took hold of my heart and changed my life forever. So I just said, I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. We get accustomed to speaking of certain episodes from our past. But I think for all of us, there are those especially embarrassing moments that, sh that shame the most shameless of us. The things we don't speak of and hope no one remembers. Do you know that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover even those sins? And for those of you who have been offended in unspeakable ways, do you know that the spirit of God that lives in you is so profoundly powerful that you might, by the Holy Spirit's help, muster the strength to grant forgiveness, even in those instances. There are no boundaries or limitations to the forgiving power of our God, and every sinner ought to rejoice in that reality. Aren't you thankful for the forgiveness and grace we stand to find in the Lord Jesus Christ? A model for how we ought to interact with those around us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the chance to spend these moments together. I pray, God, for the unforgiving, for the unforgiven, God, that you would minister to them, Lord, that you would reveal yourself powerfully. Help us together as individuals to sense the sweetness of the redemption, the forgiveness, the grace we stand to find in your son, Jesus Christ. Help that each person here would understand the message of the gospel. Help us to understand the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Help us to understand the victory we have through his resurrection, raised to walk in the newness of life, God. Lord, help us to understand the seriousness, the, the magnitude of our own sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, all having sinned and come short of your glory. Help that the weight of, of that message be felt here this morning. God, as we see ourselves for who we are in light of who you are in your infinite holiness, in our despair, in our desperation, in our acknowledged need for forgiveness, would you meet us there? Invite us unto yourself. Save us by grace. Change us eternally. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. I pray for those who are hurt, those who are hurting, those who have been offended in unspeakable ways, those who have offended in unspeakable ways. God, minister to each one by the all-sufficient power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name.